This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. going to talk a little bit about banking right now. Um, in a time when, though, there seems to be so much division around the country, our next guest understands how community engagement and more is not only the right thing to do, but is beneficial to business. With us is Joe Ficalori. He is the chief executive officer at New York Community Bank. Uh, joining us here at the New York Stock Exchange. Nice to have you here with Corey and myself. Thank you. Glad to be here. I do think it's interesting, and I, I am asking the question more and more about private corporations, their responsibility in a world where there is so much division. Tell me about it from the perspective of New York Community Bank. Well, we are a community bank that I guess was established back in 1859 as the first savings bank in Queens. So we've been serving the community for all the years of our existence, excepting our community has now stretched into the country as a whole. So we have presence in Arizona, in Florida, in Ohio, as well as New Jersey and New York. And we've grown from being about 458 million to roughly shy of 50 billion. And had we executed on a couple of the transactions that we had negotiated, uh, we probably would be in the range of 95 billion today. Uh, That's something that over the course of the most recent years, Mm -hmm. we've had uh, 10 transactions where we do combined banks to advantage. Uh, So the communities we serve grow. Well, and how do you get bigger, have more communities to work with, but still kind of have that community feel. Yeah, I think that's an important uh, point that you're making. We, in fact, continue to be substantively the same bank as we were when we were serving a very small community in in Queens. Uh, The the principal asset of the bank today is the same as it was 50 years ago. Uh, The way we execute on that asset is the same today as it was 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, With regard to the communities we serve, and and we had five branches when I joined, $448 million in size. We have about 255 branches now, and we're serving this wider community, but we have a very substantive consistency in what we do. So our asset class is today the same as it was 50 years ago. Our our certainly, our community reach is the same as it's always been. Uh, We are very active in the community for the purpose of uh, meeting the needs of the people who live there. Our principal asset is multifamily housing. Large numbers of people live in the units that we provide uh, funding for. We represent roughly 22, 24% of all multifamily housing in the New York market. So that's an awful lot of people. You guys have got a third of your branches are commercial lenders, at least they were at the end of the last fiscal year. And I wonder uh, how your commercial lending business affects that in terms of, because we're seeing massive real estate development in a lot of the markets that you're in. And I wonder what you see your role as in in financing that. I think there's no question that we have uh, whole teams of people that are dedicated to various product type. So doing commercial lending is one of the things that we do. Uh, We have very specific, uh, we have a commercial bank as well as a community bank. We have uh, multi-brand names. In other words, we serve our community as Queens County Savings Bank, as Roslyn Savings Bank, as as Atlantic Bank, going to function this evening with uh, many people from the Greek community. That is a 
institution that was established in 25 by the National Bank of Greece in Manhattan, and we acquired that in 2006. So the bank is made up of many different components, yeah, yeah. But, but the serving of the community is what we do best with consistency. So we generate assets that the community needs, and we do so in a way that avoids loss. So over the course of cycles, we lose very, very, very small amounts of money. In fact, there's no one who's lent as much as we've lent and lost as little as we've lost over the course of decades. Even during the crisis? Even during the crisis. Yeah. How'd you do that? By consistently taking risks that we, in fact, manage extraordinarily well. We manage our risk at the date of origination. We don't manage our risk as we go. We so that means you say no. We say no <laughs> or, we, or we give less. Yeah. And importantly, mm. the people we give less to have the ability to come back to us during crisis. When everybody else is foreclosing, we're not foreclosing. We're lending more money to the people who in fact took less in the first place, and now they have the ability to borrow money to buy at deep discount those properties that are being foreclosed right next to them. So it's worked out extraordinarily well over long periods of time. The numbers are the numbers. We have among the best numbers in the nation. Uh, speaking of Queens, our president was born in Queens. And uh, when he was appointing a new head of the Fed, uh, there was a lot of discussion that he was swayed by notions that not so much about monetary policy, but about some of the rules that would be applied to banks like yours. What rule change would you like to see the most coming out of the Fed? I think there's no escaping the fact that the rule that has been most difficult for us is the concept that at $50 billion, we in fact have a new risk to the entire marketplace. Uh, Governor Tirulo, in, in a conversation with a group of us, wanted to make the case that that number should be a much higher number, that $50 billion was wrong. We were the perfect example because our metrics were the same 20 years ago as they were the notion is that you're not systemically important. You're important, but not systemically important. Well, I think or systemic risk. I think the important thing is we're not only not systemically important, but we're not different. In essence, we represent no greater risk because of size. The metrics of our much, much bigger bank are the same as they were when we were a much smaller bank. So the good news is that we have a consistency of risk avoidance. And even in the worst of times, we lose very, very small amounts mm -hmm. of money. There, there are no banks that I'm aware of that have better metrics with regard to asset quality than us. All right, Jeff Piccolo is still with us as CEO of the New York Community Bank here with us at the New York Stock Exchange. Glad to have you here. Your company, of course, is Thank listed you. here. Um, I, we were talking about regulations before we went to the break. And I thought it would be fun to be talk about the regulations. I'll, I'll devil's advocate if you forgive me. But I think maybe the notion of why the rules are different for bigger banks isn't that their, risk, their initial glance at the risk profile might be the same. It's about what's under the covers and that more uh, more business is at risk, whether it's business to business loans, and you certainly are involved in a lot of that and selling loans upstream and so on, but also that there's just greater risk to more people and more, more borrowers and that a, a greater examination of bigger banks is necessary than a lesser examination of lesser banks because less there are less parties likely to be harmed because we have had banks, uh, and certainly not yours, as proven by evidence, that have not been doing things, everything's up to snuff, and right. who, who once you pull back the covers, everything doesn't look so good. No, I think that makes all the sense in the world. And, and clearly, when you look at each past cycle, the biggest losses are generated by the largest of players who, who wind up in default. However, there are far more smaller banks that go under than larger banks. Right. So in, in assets, it could be that the smaller banks represent larger dollar volumes of default. 
but that's far more manageable because each small bank can be handled. Well, and, you, and you guys have been a re uh, recipient of that, if you will, because you've been able to we, go in and we take over and some take banks them. in Arizona and Correct. other places that the FDIC Correct. needed your help with. Correct. It worked out very well. And, and the way the, the FDIC approaches this, when they are aware that there is an institution that is troubled, they do all the things necessary to prep in finding the appropriate acquirer of that troubled institution. When all of that is finished, then the closing becomes a public event. So in all of the time past, with all of the banks that have been closed, the FDIC has sufficiently had the opportunity to pass the demising institution to another bank Seamless. It's very managed. So you're getting the, tap. You're, you're the, the, the quiet tap on the shoulder. Yes. Um, yes. You know, Gary Cohn, um, White House economic advisor, has suggested that the new SIFI threshold should be maybe about $200 billion. You understand this industry. You understand smaller players or regional players like yourselves. Um, what do you think it should be? I think it should be a bank-by-bank -bank decision really? made on the criteria of the institution's assessment by its regulator. All other matters yeah. historically have been managed that way. The concept of a size has never been historically a way of managing risk. Right. It's kind of like a one-size-fits-all thing. Well, it's, it's a matter of each institution represents different risks, and therefore the risks of the institution should be assessed by their regulators. They do individual bank assessment. If it was just by size, you could do it by an FDIC call report. So why don't, why don't they do that? <laughs> regulators historically yeah. have not done a good job of this. It would be well, nice if the regulators would identify problems before there are big problems, but typically regulators, particularly in places where there aren't a lot of banks, which is not the case with you, tend to favor those small banks in those regions and get into trouble. And we've seen it in Las Vegas, and we've seen it in Arizona. We've, yeah. seen, it, we've seen it in Florida every 30 years. Yeah. It, it's kind of like saying that, that the doctors should be held accountable for death because the doctors weren't able to save all the lives that were lost. Regulators have limits as to what they can do. Regulators have information. And with that information, they can make judgments as to the degree of risk that each institution mm -hmm. represents. But the unique environment in which those assets exist are different. And therefore, the, op the, the opportunity, if you will, to actually see an adverse change at a banking institution comes uniquely with that particular bank's exposure to risk. So, so having standards that are national never work. Right. That's why they do individual bank examination. So when, when Governor Tarullo was looking to do something about the $50 billion trigger, he basically wanted to make the case. What is the risk profile of an institution that crosses $50 billion? And the reality is we were about to cross $50 billion. Our assets were substantially the same as they were when we were less than $1 billion. So the ratio of- the types of assets. The rate. The ratio of, of the assets that we had right. that were at risk with it. basically the same, 69.4%. When we became a public company nearly 25 years ago, 69.4% of our principal asset was, in fact, the principal asset December 31st of 13. It was 70.4%. Same type of asset. Same yeah. exact class so of asset. So the model hasn't changed. Exactly. And that was the point that he made, that, that the risk profile of this institution is really no different than it's been over all these years despite this 49 times bigger. It's basically... Arguably, but are you, you the exception? Expensive. But are you the exception? Well, we are the exception because we have the results that nobody else has. We've, we've had consistency of performance even in adverse cycles. But having said that, it still makes the case that size does not determine the risk. The
the trigger of $50 billion does not judge. Size whether, alone, right. Right. It only judges size. And right. you could argue that you're more geographically diversified and that your principal risk of yes. being in one in the New York region alone right. was your, maybe still be your greatest risk, but is less than it was. Right. I think the good news about our being in the New York region, in the New York region, cycle after cycle, Bowery, American, Greater, a lot of banks went out of business. We, in fact, were lending more when they were going out of business because our business model is different in the same market. Right. All right. Five seconds. Business sure. good? Yes. The economic environment looks good? Yes, for us. Yes. And the business and climate looks good? Yes. Okay. <laughs> we're running out of yes, time. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I love it when you, when someone can, can do it that quickly. Thank you so much. Sure. Glad to do it. Jeff Figalore, the Chief Executive Officer at New York Community Bank, here with uh, some thoughts on uh, the banking industry and also on community involvement. Our thanks to you. markets a little bit higher as investors put off some big bets before a series of key central bank meetings this week. We talked about that a little bit earlier, but we do want to get a check uh, on life here at the New York Stock Exchange and a little bit on the trading session. Jonathan Corpina is Senior Managing Partner at Meridian Equity Partners, and uh, he's on site with us right here at the New York Stock Exchange, because this is your home, right? This is. I come here every day. <laughs> we want to start talking about kind of life here at the exchange, because Corey... Uh, hasn't been here, I guess, in a while. In a few years, and, I, and I, when I, but I used to, you know, when I was one of the people that helped start the street.com, we did it right around the corner, Rector and Trinity here, right behind uh, Trinity Church. Uh, at the time, I had a girlfriend who worked here in the in the garage in the New York Stock Exchange. A lot of friends down here. This place had it was different then. It was physically different. It looked. It was much more frenetic. A lot more people. Talk to me about what you've seen here in your 20-plus years here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the whole environment has changed. And I think if you look at the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, it's no different from the trading desk in Stanford at UBS or some of the other major houses around, around this country. Um, technology has advanced over time in a way where we're able to do a lot more as traders. We don't need as many people, but yet we are much more efficient than we were years, years before. The New York Stock Exchange has embraced technology in a, in a large way, and we've changed to a model where we need to have every aspect of technology uh, on this trading floor as someone who would be at a trading desk across the street or in Midtown or in Europe. So what we do here on the floor is really no different than any other trading desk around. Where do you see it going, though? I mean, I'm shocked. I, I've done reporting from the New York Stock Exchange where you were just surrounded by bodies, People bumped into, into you. while you were on air. There was paper everywhere on the floor. It was a very different environment. It's not so long ago. It was. And I think, you know, that environment is kind of everywhere, right? So, like, everyone looks at their cell phones now as they're walking down the street. And they're fo- everyone's <laughs> for better or for worse. Right, for better or for worse. <laughs> and everyone's phone number is in there, and no one has to do any math. Every, you know, your computers do it for you. Same thing on the floor. We've got, we've got technology that has advanced in a way where it does a lot of the these the little mundane aspects of our job and frees us up to do much more complicated thing. Where does it go from here? I actually think the pendulum has swung a little too far as far as technology and regulation needs to be tightened up just a little bit because mm-hmm. technology moves much faster than regulation does. And by the time regulation tries to catch up, something new has come along. So what are you concerned about? That's interesting. And we, we often say that, that regulators are always behind the curve a little bit. But what is it that you're specifically concerned about? You know, my concern is that the markets have become too fragmented and it's been too easy for other liquidity centers that are out there, whether they're dark pools, ECNs, other exchanges that have come up. So I think we have, we have too many options that are out there. There's 30 plus different venues that, that people can trade on. It's a lot. Do we need 30? No. Is, is five a good number? 
I, you know, I'm not sure what that answer is, but I definitely think that things need to be tightened up. There needs to be a little bit more transparency as far as price and what the retail investors and the institutional investors ultimately get. There's a proposal out there uh, for BATS to offer a closing at 4 o'clock price. So right now the New York Stock Exchange can just say, that's it, it's 4 o'clock, that's the price. And, and that has tremendous effects around the market, even though some places continue to trade. You can do after-hours trading in some places. What would that mean if BATS gets a, the opportunity to put a 4 o'clock print on? What would that mean for the New York Stock Exchange? Right. So, so New York Stock Exchange is the primary market for, for many listed companies. And under this proposal, the New York Stock Exchange would still set that closing price. BATS would then just be able to print a, an offsetting print with that same price on the NYSE. Right. So they're just trying to attract order flow to their exchange. Um, I, I understand the, you know, the competitive aspects here of different exchanges and trying to get order flow. But at the end of the day, the primary market sets the price, and I think investors feel much more so comfortable even if at Bats, the primary. To paraphrase, even if BATS gets a, the opportunity to say this is the print, this is the final price, it would have to be what you guys say the final price is. That's correct. So we set the final price, and then after that print is occurring, BATS would then print their price, their print at the same price. Jonathan, uh, earlier Corey was showing me that uh, headline about PepsiCo moving their stock exchange listing to the NASDAQ. How concerned are you that there are a lot of different options, and everybody's competing, and so companies can easily move their listings? I mean, I don't necessarily care as an investor where it happens as long as it's a regulated exchange. Right. Um, do you see more movement around? I, I think we definitely have seen movements in, in many different ways, you know, to, to and fro from the, from the NASDAQ to the exchange. You guys got Oracle recently. Back and forth. What's that? You got Oracle recently. We got Oracle recently. NASDAQ. There's other discussions of other companies coming down the pike here. Um, I think we're going to continue to see that just because it's become such a competitive market. Yeah. And, and, you know, turning back the clock, the primary sale was, all right, this is the New York Stock Exchange. We can, you know, trade your stock for you and give you the best price and, and what's best for your investors. There's so many more ancillary things that they tie on to, right? Whether it's media exposure in Times Square mm-hmm. on their screens, it's the big boards that are here and the big flags that hang outside here and the CNBC exposure of ringing the bell. So <gasps> they've, they've tied Did on- Did you dare to say that? And Bloomberg <laughs> and the other media outlets that we have here on the floor. Um, so from that aspect point of view, that's what they, that's what they sell. Yeah. And, and I think it's gotten away from what is the primary usage of an exchange of finding clients the best price. Yeah. Uh, it, it's intriguing, too, um, in terms of those listings. I mean, uh, I it, 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 it think it always stays just equities, principally equities and, and, and ETFs and the like. Here in, yeah. in, in this area, yeah. I do. Um, you know, there is some options uh, trading that does occur on the, the Amex floor right. that we have down here. Right. But I think from this aspect here, this is, this is the primary uh, you know, revenue point that they look for. i uh, got 20 seconds. Someone who's seen a lot of different market cycles. What do you think about Bitcoin futures, just quickly? Oh, it is, it is quite interesting to watch. Um, I, I'm happy to see that now there's ways that people can short Bitcoin. <laughs> interesting. Um, fun to get some time with you. Great. Thank, Thank you, you for your time. John Corpina, he's Senior Managing Partner at Meridian mm-hmm. Equity partners on site with us here at the New York Stock Exchange. All I really need is a little bit. Not a lot, baby girl, just a little bit. We can head to the crib in a little bit. I can show you well, how we I got a little bit, bit of trading and options of Bitcoin and a little bit of an ability to short Bitcoin for the first time. Rob Urban joins us right now, Bloomberg News Senior Financial Editor, and Sonny Singh, Chief Commercial Officer at BitPay. Sonny, glad to talk. I saw you on TV on, on Friday, right? So glad to have you on the radio here. Uh, the, uh, everyone's getting the Bitcoin love. Uh, Rob Urban, first of all, give me the news. What happened and what didn't happen here with Bitcoin? Well, I mean, the CBOE uh, launched uh, trading in Bitcoin futures, uh, the first uh, the first futures, uh, cryptocurrency to futures to be traded here, and uh, by a major exchange. And, you know, they, they beforehand, they, they tried to, 
temper expectations a bit, said, you know, these things are a little bit slow to start. But it, it exceeded trading uh, demand, exceeded expectations, and so did uh, the volatility, um, which, uh, you know, tripped, uh, uh, you know, triggered a, a, a halt in trading a couple of times in the first few hours. Um, but, the, you know, the price is, uh, is up quite a lot. The, uh, the, there's a premium for the futures above uh, Bitcoin itself that, uh, you know, arbitrageurs will, uh, will happily gobble up uh, in the near future. So a success, Rob Urban, or what? <laughs> I, you know, I guess it, it, it depends on how you. Uh, I, I know what you were looking for. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think they they launched a new product and people wanted it. That's fairly straightforward uh, definition of success. So, uh, Sonny, let me get to you. What was the imp impact on the market? You know, I, I got up in the in the wee hours, uh, uh, <laughs> looking at how it was trading. I know you. You probably did, well. You have a newborn. You were up in yep. the wee hours, whether you wanted to be or not. Uh, did you? Uh, you know, the volatility was crazy. It looked immediately like there was going to be a big sell-off, and then it disappeared. Yeah, I mean, I think we all kind of followed it and turned into in the Bitcoin world almost a non-event. It actually worked pretty well, and all the speculation that the short sellers are going to drag the price down because it's overvalued, and everyone wants to short it in the last two months now has their chance, and the price has actually gone up today. So I think it's. You know, worked out the way it wanted, and everything's life's back to normal again. I would say. So, when we, when you look at this trading of it, though, it does allow for um, some different kinds of positions, not least of which a short position. A, a not all that clever person could probably even find a way to collar some profits right now. I would imagine if you, someone like you, but maybe sitting on some Bitcoin for a while, might be thinking, "Hey, this is a way for me to sort of, uh, 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 if there's a big sell-off, take a little bit of money off the table, and if, and and if there's if money rises, I can." You know, maybe even sell something of uh, a, a future that would actually uh, benefit me that way. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. There is that option, and I think also it's it's being gradually rolled out, which is the right approach. So they're moving it kind of low, going into phases. So today was the first day. There's not a lot of large institutions on this platform set up yet. A lot of the big banks are taking a wait and see approach, as are the sellers that hold a lot of Bitcoin are probably taking a wait and see approach. And plus, a lot of these sellers are pretty diehards that are thinking the price will keep going up too. So they're not really. Interested in maybe taking some off the table yet? We'll see. But again, this will again next week we're having another launch with the uh, CBOE or CME, the Mercantile Exchange. So we're pretty excited about that. And I think this also opens up the door for ETFs too down the road. So it's definitely a great step in the right direction. Rob, does it also open up the door for more oversight by regulators, more regulation? Uh, as a result, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a little bit of an unusual situation there. Um, the CFTC uh, is overseeing trading in the futures, which are based on an underlying asset that is largely unregulated. Um, the the futures do uh, settle in uh, dollars, though, so it's 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 a product that is in in some ways. <laughs> Uh, completely separate. It's just connect. You know, it's obviously pegged to the price of Bitcoin, and the but the real connection is when uh, when arbitrageurs uh, take advantage of that of that difference to profit. Um, you know, I, I, I just also commenting on what what uh, what he was saying about the um, sort of slow start. It we had a story out this we have a story out this afternoon, sort of looking at structural issues in the market that at, at the start do uh, make it. More attractive, easier, cheaper to uh, to go long than go short. Um, <clears throat> one of the uh, TV a little while ago was the head of interactive brokers, 
um, and they only let their clients go long. Um, mm. They also have very and with high, a fifty percent margin. You they have a fifty percent behind it. They yeah. have a fifty percent margin <laughs> requirement. Well, the the CBOE itself has a forty five percent or higher uh, margin requirement. So, um, on a bit on Bitfinex, a uh, big Bitcoin exchange, uh, you can you can get thirty percent margin. So you know it's it's easier to uh, to to go long on Bitcoin itself. So, Sonny, yeah, when, when you look at this, I thought, I thought Sonny, one of the interesting things also is that it settles in cash. So it doesn't actually settle yeah. in Bitcoin. So there's always going to be a difference between the futures price and the Bitcoin price, except for the exact second of, inspira- of, of expiration. <laughs> yeah, and I think that was a smart move, actually. It makes it simple and easy, and we can add in the more complex stuff later on. But also, this opens up now, again, because you've had Jamie Dimon for the last six months saying how bad of a trade Bitcoin is and how he's against it. And now it's his time to really, you know, prove it and take the trade on the other way if he wants, right? And it's just showing that Bitcoin is very resilient and, you know, it's, it goes up and down and it's a moving market now. And the great thing is now you're providing transparency and regulations now to a market which, as you guys talked about before, wasn't always transparent. So this is a great step. So we're excited about this. Right. But as we said, maybe more transparency for a market about but still has not maybe enough transparency for the actual currency itself in terms of how it moves around. Uh, so time will tell, I guess, on this. Um, Got to leave it there. Sunny Singh, Chief Commercial Officer at BitPay, along with our Rob Urban of Bloomberg News. Just take your place in the driver's seat. Driver's seat. All right, Carol, for the, what, three years we've been doing this radio show almost? I've been trying to figure out what new like car to get. I've been, oh. I've been thinking of a new car for at least <laughs> yeah, really. 20 of the last 10 years. I might have finally fixed it with Silver Car. Interesting company whose CEO joins us right now, Luke Schneider. Luke, I stumbled upon your company thanks to Charlie Vollmer, our, our engineer here, uh, and rented one of your Audis for a wonderful long weekend in Michigan recently. Uh, talk to me about how you're starting this new rental car business focused on offering really one type of car. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I uh, appreciate you having me on the show. And um, it's uh, it's a, a concept that really started uh, several years ago with two guys who were uh, stuck with a, a white minivan on a cool guy's golf vacation, trying to figure out how how could this possibly have happened. <laughs> and uh, so so frequently we rent a car, and it's you know a certain car or similar, and you usually get something similar. Uh, so the idea was to take that concept and sort of flip it on its head and create sort of the Southwest Airlines of the rental car industry. Uh, where much as Southwest only flies one kind of plane, uh, what if we were to offer only a single type of car? And that way you always know what you're going to get, and there's no surprises, no disappointments. Uh, and in the case of Silver Car, uh, that uh, that car happens to be a, a silver Audi A4 uh, that comes loaded, and uh, the entire experience is something that you do uh, uh, on your phone. So it's a completely digital, uh, hands, hands-off experience at the, uh, at the airport or wherever you pick it up. And uh, it's designed to be seamless. So Southwest's ability to operate a single type of plane allows it to clean the plane faster, service the plane with more reliability in terms of just having the stuff they need and people having the experience they need when they need it, but also turn the plane faster so they can get another ride or two every day out of those planes. How is having the same kind of car save you cost-wise? 
Sure. Well, there's a few things, right? There's there's two big problems that have plagued rental car customers for decades. And the, the first is you know, obviously never knowing what you're going to get, and we've solved that you know with the single car type. Um, the other one is is what we call the hassle, which is kind of when you go through the process of renting the car, getting upsold on insurance and fuel plans, and uh, you know GPS devices that are worse than the one on your phone. And nickel and diving so every way, yeah. <laughs> exactly right. And, and and essentially what having a single car does is um, it, it sets that customer's expectation for what they're going to pick up. Um, we also can integrate technology into the vehicle more easily to allow your phone, for example, to reserve a car, um, but also to unlock the car uh, so that you can actually do the entire process yourself if you don't want uh, to have somebody help or a concierge to um, to, to work with you on it. Um, so what that allows us to do on the, on the backside is operationally you know, clean, wash, and fuel cars um, independently, uh, and then leave them for people uh, in staging environments where they can simply use their phone, scan the car to unlock it, hop in, and off they go. So take me back, and, and full disclosure, transparency, if you will, um, Audi made an investment in you guys a few years ago, and now they've actually acquired Silvercar, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So Silvercar began as a venture-backed startup in 2012. Really, um, mm-hmm. it it uh, I was uh, had previously been with a company called Zipcar, which does uh, mm-hmm. car sharing. I was the chief technology officer there, and um, was approached, and and we came uh, up with the, the concepted idea um, really in 2012. Um, we raised three uh, three rounds of venture capital uh, over the next three or four years, uh, and Audi uh, led our Series C round. Uh, and then I think what they saw and what we were doing and what's happening in the auto industry uh, in a broader sense today um, gave them an indication that the technology and the operations and the overall approach to mobility that they were seeing with Silvercar and their own vehicle products uh, warranted um, the full acquisition of the company in 2017. So um, it's recently closed and uh, we're very, very excited and uh, backed by uh, really the largest auto company uh, in the world. But you guys chose Audi before even Audi got involved, is that right? We did. When we formed up the company, um, there was a lot of discussion about which vehicle type to use, whose make and whose model. Uh, And as we, we looked into it, um, we found a real opportunity in the premium segment of rental car. And this is not luxury. You know, we're not renting Bentleys or something over the top. It's uh, it's a car that is a higher-end car, but still can serve, call it 80 to 90% of airport car rental needs. Um, and so when we began to dig in deeper, the research indicated that a car uh, the size of an A4 uh, and one with the general feature sets as you could find in an A4 uh, was really the ideal product. Um, when we began to, to wait, tell me, to tell me why. Folks. I mean, the the car, the car is it's fun to drive, right? But why that car? Like, what, like, what, what have yeah. they got that makes it ideal? Well, about 85% of all airport car rentals happen in a vehicle the size of an A4, and by that we mean what what you would you know call a, a, exactly right. Um, on top of that, uh, you've got a car that has a fairly sophisticated um, internal network called a controller area network, um, which allowed us to integrate with it technologically more easily. And by doing that, it enabled our technology model, right, where we allow customers to access directly through their phones. So that was a huge piece of it right there. Um, okay. On top of that, the, the, the Audi brand 
which has gone through quite a remarkable, you know, ascension over the last, call it, decade or more. It really was this um, industry challenger and consumer champion. And that's the way we viewed Silver Car from day one, is just challenging this industry of dowdy, overpriced, horrible customer service in car rental um, right, right. By, by flipping it on, the model on its head well, and thinking about what customers would want. Luke, let me ask this. What's your, what's your pricing strategy? I was, again, a singular experience on this, but I priced about six different companies going from Chicago for three days and a weekend, and your costs were so much lower. I, I, I would, probably would have paid the same, but when I compared to any other luxury rental or anything nearby, it was so much cheaper. And I wonder, I presume that's a strategy, not just a, 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 a Corey's lucky. I'm very lucky, but I'm not that lucky. <laughs> we priced that just for you, Corey. No, the, uh, the, the reality of it is we, we, um, when, you buy, when, you, when you look at uh, what they call rack rates for rental cars, they typically don't involve a, a discount that somebody gets through either an auto club membership or a corporate uh, discount. Um, and so what people actually pay is somewhat less than what you see advertised on a website. Um, we, we, in keeping with our philosophy, have really done away with that. We want to price the car you know, at the proper rate, um, but in a way that actually encourages people to try it. Because when we launched, the biggest problem was nobody believed us. And they thought there is absolutely no way I'm going to rent an Audi A4, and it's actually going to be an Audi A4. I'm getting stuck with a purple PT Cruiser or something when I show up at the lot. And by you know what we learned is that pricing will actually drive trial. And so in many ways, what we do is we price so that we can drive trial. And there's just a kind of a funny thing that happens when people yeah. try Silver Car and they realize it. You know, it's actually so much easier to use. It almost doesn't yep. make sense. Luke Schneider, CEO of Silver Car. Uh, it, it happened. It's a fascinating company. I appreciate appreciate your work. The cars, let alone the time with you on the radio. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. It is time for your movers and shakers on this Monday, December 11th, 2017. Carol Master, along with Corey Johnson, live at the New York Stock Exchange. S&P 500, almost an even split. 261 names in the index higher today. 237 lower, seven unchanged. The number one gainer in the S&P 500. Ticker is CTL, CenturyLink. And this stock, Corey, up about 8.2% to just under 16 bucks a share. Uh, CenturyLink insiders buying 2. Point five three two hundred. Well, let's just do this. Two and a half million worth of uh, shares in the previous session. Two and a half million dollars worth of shares in the previous session. Uh, the company's president and CEO had the largest purchase, worth about a million dollars, and uh, that's Jeffrey K. Story. He's the president and COO. It's his only transaction in the last year. A total of seven insiders buying the stock, according to SEC filing. So again, uh, CenturyLink. That stock, number one gainer in the S&P 500 today, up more than 8%. Interesting that he's doing it before the home game of the Seahawks playing against the L.A. Rams. Is it? 
Well, yeah, because they play at CenturyLink Field in Seattle, oh, as you see. know. The clink, as I know, I think the best place to watch a football game is in all of sports. And it's, oh, really? In all of football, that stadium? Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's crazy. It is loud. The fans are into it. Uh, there's I've never experienced anything like it in uh, a non-playoff uh, or finals experience ever. Uh, hey, I want to get to Scana. A company Scana? called Scana, uh, which uh, is you may not know it as Scana, but it is an operator of electrical utilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, t- t- so the ticker for Scana is, is spelled S-C-A-N-A. Uh, S-C-G is, is the ticker. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and uh, most importantly, they operate um, power plants and so on for South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia. Um, Scana shares were down today. Uh, not a lot, but they were were notably down today, uh, about 7%, uh, closing a foot at 42.38. And this is right ahead of South Carolina PSC. Uh, the uh, hearing about uh, a staff request to suspend rates charged by the utilities to nuclear reactors. Uh, so that's had the sell-off of the shares. Uh, the market could be pricing in a worst-case scenario here that uh, they won't be able to raise rates. They might have to lower rates um, uh, as the public utilities look at how much they're charging for these nuclear facilities uh, there in uh, in the South. All right. Good to know. Hey, I want to mention a story that we talked about with our own Scott Moritz of Bloomberg News, and this has to do with Verizon Communications expanding its streaming agreement with the NFL. Uh, giving fans the ability to watch games and highlights over mobile networks through its media outlets such as Yahoo Sports. It's a five-year deal announced today, starts in January, and it does allow mobile customers on any carrier to access the season's playoff games uh, as well as the Super Bowl on their phones. Contract, though, is for less than $2 billion. That's according to a person familiar with the details. Uh, as for shares of Verizon, they were up about 1.5% to 51.81 a share. Verizon shares, though, still down about 3% so far this year. I'll give some real quick. Blueprint Medicines, a Cambridge, Massachusetts-based company, uh, shares up 23% today. This company wow. has a two and a half billion, sorry, three and a half billion dollar market cap right now. Analysts bullish for the company. Investors bullish after some uh, early stage test data that looked really good for, the, for something called BLU-285, an advanced systemic microcytosis. Say yeah. that five times fast. I won't. Mm. Uh, but shares up a lot. Uh, uh, the, the clinical efficacy was uh, very strong uh, for these patients, regardless of what sort of uh, uh, types of this disease that they had. Uh, and it seemed to show a lot more efficacy than uh, even the, the bulls had hoped. Uh, and so uh, uh, more test data is expected. But this early stage data was super strong for this company. and had the stock flying. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr. Wilson! Dave Wilson joins us right now with his uh, uh, newly refreshed stock of the day. David? Well, you just got to pick the right one, Corey, and today it's Intersect ENT. Now, this is a company that could have been named Intersect Ear, Nose, and Throat, or maybe Intersect Sinusitis, or maybe even Intersect Otolaryngology. Those alternatives indicate what the medical product maker is all about. Intersect ENT uh, was founded in 2003, went public in July 2014 under the ticker XENT. Company shares have swung up and down since the debut. During the first year of trading, Intersect ENT almost tripled from its initial price of $11 a share. The entire gain was lost by last November, and then the stock surged a second time. And today, Intersect ENT rose to a record after gaining U.S. approval to sell a new sinus implant. 
That's the nose part. The device is designed to treat patients with recurrent nasal polyps. These are growths that can cause congestions, infections, and in a worst-case scenario, even lose your sense of smell. Now, Piper Jaffrey said the clearance was received earlier than the firm expected. Intersect ENT plans to begin selling the device in next year's first half. Uh, they also offer other devices used in treating uh, sinuses after surgery. And uh, today, the stock in response to this new product potentially coming down the line next year uh, gained 14.5 percent. Right, and up 171% so far in 2017. Absolutely. That's that second move. wave, you know, since the IPO. Yeah. It's been quite yeah, the performer. Indeed, David. Well, thank you much. David Wilson is our stock editor at Bloomberg, and of course, joins us throughout the show. We love that. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.